Welcome back everyone to Cambridge Kopitiam. I'm Hazik, a postgrad student studying architecture at St. John's College at the University of Cambridge. So Siva, you're studying sustainable development, is that right? Yeah, to be specific, engineering for sustainable development. So engineering and sustainable development. I mean Minshran, you're also doing engineering as well, aren't you? Yeah, I'm doing engineering and I'm in my second year. Have you specialized in any kind of engineering yourself? Um, not yet, and I'm only required to do so in my third year, so I've still got a bit of time to look around. Okay, that's really cool, because COP26 recently concluded a couple of weeks back, and obviously this would be something that I assume you two would be very interested in. Yeah, especially for me, like, you know, yeah. I'm studying sustainable development, so I'm supposed to know what's going on, right? Uh, but before that, I, I guess it would be nice to actually, like, explain the whole history of COP for a moment. I mean, not, not yeah. the whole history, but maybe a brief history. Yeah, because actually, even for me, when I was reading about COP26, I hadn't realised that this is something that happens, you know, semi-regularly. So, I, I mean, yeah, what, what, what is the history behind it? What were the origins? I guess they wanted to, like, understand, like, how environmental changes would actually affect and govern everything else. So, like, the idea of how CO2s can actually, the CO2 emission can actually affect us as a whole started in, like, COP3, when they actually established the Kyoto Protocol, where they tried to understand how CO2s can actually affect the whole environment. And then, uh, from then on, we are actually trying to understand uh, what are the... Uh, effects of CO2 and also try to establish certain amount of achievements each country as well called NDC. Okay. So uh, these NDCs will actually determine like what countries have to cut down what type of emissions and what they're supposed to do in the future as well. And then recently you, you mentioned about COP26 that happened in Glasgow. So yeah. there's certain achievements to COP26 uh, that recently happened as well. Some countries were actually like talking about decarbonization plans strengthening their emission reductions by 2030. And also developed countries were talking about trying to fund these developing countries to actually like tackle climate change as well. So those were like the interesting things that actually happened in COP26 recently. Yeah, that's something that I've always wondered about because all of these new restrictions and things that they're trying to implement, it comes almost at a cost to developing countries because developed countries, obviously they had, you know, they had their industrial revolutions a lot earlier and they were able to maximize and capitalize on the products of you know, high energy use, mm. which is something that in effect, a lot of these developing countries might have to almost skip over. Yeah. Is, is what they discussed at COP26, something that you think will be able to make up for that? And I guess that's where the downfall of COP26 actually happens. It's right. all like really big ideas, but at the end of the day, there's not much details into it. So I guess in the next COP that's going to happen in Egypt, COP27, hopefully they'll actually come up with the details because this, this is a pretty new framework. All the developed countries are putting their money into a pool and then distributing to developing countries. So hopefully by COP27, there's much more detail and much more black and white towards like how this thing is going to occur. Yeah, hopefully, you know, like fingers crossed for all of us, you know, what, what's discussed at these meetings actually comes to, to fruition and has, you know, a, a beneficial effect. Because I mean, for people like me, as an architect and for people like you mentioned as an engineer, you know, sustainability has to be at the core of what we do as young people going forward. Yeah, so following from what Siva has mentioned just now, I think the major achievement is that, you know, this is the first time they have explicitly mentioned about phasing out the fossil fuels and shifting from like fishing from coal, stuff like that. And following about what Siva has mentioned about the developed countries making the investments for developing countries, when we look at the overview, we would see this kind of contrast because normally it's the developing countries which has the lowest carbon footprints, but on the other hand, they are experiencing the highest vulnerability in terms of poverty, as well as having more people living close to like low sea level. 
So I think that kind of make up a case of like what they can do and the support they require from the other developed countries, which aligns the next steps that we require to do. And I think it's also very impressive that because Malaysia, we actually agreed to support the pledge to reduce methane. So that means that our nation, it's actively acknowledging the importance and urgency of this matter. And we are trying to date it, for example, somehow. Yeah, so I'm, I mean, I'm curious what you guys think where Malaysia falls into this spectrum. In Malaysia in general, they're pretty much like similar to other developing countries and in some way developed countries as well. There are targets, but there's not much planning towards like how to achieve those targets. And sometimes I feel like we get lost in towards, okay, we're going to achieve this, we're going to achieve that. But then like, what are we going to do to actually achieve those targets? There's not much conversation about that. So unfortunately, we did not reach that stage whereby are we going to like gazette more forests? Are we going to like introduce more EVs? Yeah, there's not much details into it. So that's quite unfortunate. Yeah, because it's really concerning for me because I, I recall when I was working in KLCC, every morning I would have to get into the car. Um, and my, I didn't live far away from KLCC. It was like, I lived in Malawati, which is, you know, normally a 20 minute drive. But you get into the car, you stay in traffic for, you know, 45 minutes up to an hour. And this is everyone else doing the same thing. Everyone's sitting in traffic, you know, and, and no one's using EVs. And there's, I guess there are people using public transport as well, but just the roads are so congested. Um, and it makes me wonder, you know, where, where does Malaysia go from here? What kind of policies do we have in place to take us forward? I totally agree with you because like like you, I also work in Bangsa yeah. and, and it's a pain to actually yeah, like right? go through the traffic. And then basically transportation is actually one of the highest emitters when it comes to uh, our carbon emissions in Malaysia, like around 162.8 million tons of CO2e emissions. So it's kind of a shame that we hardly use any public transport. We still use like cars and then it's like mostly single occupancy because you're actually heading to work right you don't usually like ask your friend um are you going to bangsa as well some people say yes some people say no but mm. we usually don't do that and then we just like hop into the car early in the morning go to work and we don't see the detriments behind it yeah i mean how about you i mean do you do you use public transport at all barely any so i barely take any public transport because there's only ktm in my area which is quite far from my home and it's not really convenient. Yeah. Yeah, we know that most people are going for MRT and LTA anyway, since those are more convenient and has better facilities. So I think that's also something that we need to look into. Yeah, I mean, logically speaking, if let's say you're still connected through public transport, right? You don't want to like go through the traffic in KL, especially, you know how bad it is already. Yeah. So you would rather use public transport to actually reach these places. But Coming from a guy who's from Rawang and like Mingxuan mentioned, the only access to the train is actually the KTM, which is a hundreds, hundreds of years old company. And sometimes there is inefficiencies as well. So it, it is sometimes a pain. And at the end of the day, these types of places, which is away from the city, you tend to want to use like cars to actually travel. And an issue is the fact that we don't have a lot of EV cars to actually reduce the amount of CO2 emissions. And that is a big issue that Malaysia, unfortunately, don't really have much policy. I mean, there is, I believe, the government has indicated that they want to reduce the amount of tax when it comes to purchasing EV cars. But even if you like slash the taxes for purchasing EV cars, I believe it's still going to be really expensive and it's only affordable towards the upper middle class, which is not the majority in Malaysia. So... Unfortunately, there's not much options if you're the lower middle class when it comes to these EV vehicles as well. Yeah, but even if you were to slash the taxes and everything, from a non-governmental perspective, like if I was a buyer looking for a new car, 
and I looked at what kind of facilities we have in terms of electric car charging and the infrastructure that is necessary. It's not really there, is it? So as a consumer, there isn't much incentive to go electric in Malaysia from that perspective. Regarding EV ride, although we might look at this as a very viable solution, but in reality, there are a lot of aspects that we still need to consider and need to work on. For example, currently we simply don't have the capacity to produce battery that could, you know, store so much energy that could facilitate the everyday travel. So that's one thing that we need to look from the technological perspective. And on the other hand, I remember that this idea about like how you know the petrol station they have this potential to kind of undergo a transition. So right now, cars will just go to the petrol station and just recharge. But in the future, maybe what will happen is that people don't have to only charge their cars at home, but they can charge it along the petrol station or maybe just change the battery. So that will facilitate some kind of long distance traveling and that could overcome a lot of the current barriers. But in order to do so, it will require a large-scale implementation of like brand new infrastructure, which will require a lot of capital. So that's also the idea of when should we start deploying it and who should be the one to initiate it? Can I just go back to something that you mentioned? So, you, I mean, you're talking about battery technology and effectively um, energy density, right? Yeah. But see, what I've always wondered is why couldn't you, say if you took city center areas where, you know, the roads are always typically going to be congested and, you're, and in the city center as well, because it's very dense, if you're moving from A to B, that distance from A to B isn't going to be very long. And so the need for a longer range isn't as, isn't as prevalent or is not as salient. Right. So why, I don't know, why couldn't you do in KLCC enforced like a zone where within that zone, the only cars that can enter are, you know, low emission cars or electric cars? Would, I mean, would that even be viable? I think the idea that you actually propose is kind of done in some countries already. I think they do it in London, in the city of London. The city of London yeah. as well, yeah. Um, city of London. And then I think in Canada, there's actually a specific zone, but you can't even bring cars at all. So like, they're still testing this idea whereby they would actually like take public transport to that one area. And then in terms of the last mile to actually go to the exact destination, they will either use a bike or a walk, or there may be a tram service or something that they can actually take. So there are options, but it's more towards like, are there facilities that can actually like support these options or not? So these are the things that I believe city planners would actually have to think in terms of like, okay, if we were to introduce maybe a tram service or trolley buses or something, is there a place where we can actually put these trolley buses? Or is there a place where we can actually put lines and everything so that we can actually like support all these uh, systems? So these are basically what city planners should actually like think about in the future. saying right it just reminds me of a concept i've come across it's called 20 minute city so basically it's an urban development concept and their idea is to create neighborhoods such that they have access to all the daily necessities or infrastructure within 20 minutes walk so if we could you know create these kind of bubbles around malaysia then that could like greatly reduce the need to travel within the city because people can just well 20 minutes walk 
in the hot sun, you, you really want me to sweat, is it? I, I would I would agree for a 10 minute walk, lah, but then like 20 minutes is like, whoo, I'll be, yeah. be sweating. Well, I mean, some cities, yeah. like in yeah. Singapore, right? You have so many underground walkways. Oh. All these places are, you know, they're shielded from the sun. I mean, they're also air conditioned, but then that's also a massive energy load as well. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, I know, I know what you mean. Because Malaysia, it makes it problematic. But I mean, in Malaysia, things like insulation aren't as important just because it's so hot already. Yeah. But what is important is cooling and how can you create passive cooling? How do you create cooling with the actual design and fabric of the building rather than mechanical means, which is what we always do. Mm. You know, we might love our AC and our fans, but the electricity consumption of that is so high. I was looking at a statistic that buildings and the uses of buildings accounts for up to 48% of Malaysia's electricity consumption. Wow. Which is, and this is from 2014, and you'd have to assume that in that time, um, it's increased. And so by 2030, it's expected that it will be half of Malaysia's electricity consumption, which is crazy. Yeah, I, I worked in an electric utility industry and the power industry. And basically, you can see if the temperature is going to be really high, right? Like sometimes, you know, Malaysia can be hot, it's 32 degrees Celsius. That's when I don't like the idea of 20 minutes it is. But um, <laughs> yeah, you can basically see the demand increases significantly, not just residential, but even commercial and maybe industries will try to ramp up their, the amount of AC that you're actually using. And it's kind of sad. Because like, again, coming from the industry, most of our power actually comes from like fossil fuels and stuff. So that's actually like really, really detrimental towards our environment as well. So how much AC do you use at home? For me, I just on it for one hour and then like after that, <laughs> come out, I just go sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, but I mean, it's a similar, I guess, argument when if you talk about EV cars as well, because like going back to the infrastructure, the energy that source or that will power that infrastructure is still, you know, it's still fossil fuels. Is Malaysia looking at all to transition away from that? Um, yeah, there are like plans in the future. In terms of the transmission grid level, there's like connections, for example, large-scale solar that they're trying to create. There's like a bunch of them in Malaysia right now, and there's going to be more in the future. So that's also coming into play. And at the same time, in the residential and commercial, maybe even industrial market as well, there are like certain schemes like net energy metering, there's fit uh, and, and many other schemes that actually supports these. But then I, I feel like these types of schemes aren't really like progressing as much because like at the end of the day, the Energy Commission actually just gives, or SEDA, just gives certain amount of allocation for per year. Like we are only giving out 500 megawatts of uh, availability for you to actually like go into the scheme. So it's very, very minimal. For me, I have no idea why they do that, but sometimes I feel like the progress could be much better because 93.61% of electricity is non-renewable sources, like really dirty sources. So again, like transportation is number one in terms of carbon emissions, energy is number two. So like if you're able to solve these two things and that will actually be pretty good. And yeah, you mentioned about electric cars. At the end of the day, the reason why we want to go electric is to reduce the amount of emissions. But if our sources are coming from fossil fuels and everything, right? Is there any difference? There might be some small difference, but then at the end of the day, you're also going to emit, so... Yeah, totally agree with what you said. And another thing that we could consider is that although now we're very much looking at electric vehicles, but there are actually some substitutes that we could look into as well. Because like scientists are also considering electric road solution or hydrogen fuel cell powered vehicles. So we have a lot of options and we're still trying to break through this technology. So I think there's certainly hopes around. While we're looking into the source of the energy, there's also like the other options that we should not miss out on. Yeah, hydrogen is actually very interesting. But when you actually get hydrogen in Malaysia, is it going to be like, oh, we're going to take electricity and then try to use like the electrolysis process and remove the hydrogen from water? Or 
we actually had this topic in sustainable engineering. It's one of our module, and they actually talk about like the future of hydrogen fuel cell power cars. So essentially, there are two types of hydrogen. They call it green hydrogen or blue hydrogen. In green hydrogen, we do electrolysis, which is exactly what Siva has talked about. Mm -hmm. But in blue hydrogen, you basically react the methane with hot steam. And from that process, you get carbon dioxide and hydrogen. So that's another problem. So in the process of blue hydrogen itself, you're creating the carbon dioxide, which you need to sequester. Mm. So there's this layer of complication. And I think right now, the efficiency of the fuel cell is not very viable yet. So there's this major bottleneck in terms of the efficiency, which makes it less viable than EV. But on the other hand, I think electrolyte solution is coming off as like one of the viable options that people are still looking into. Like we don't have extensive knowledge in it yet, but mm. it's a pathway that we could possibly travel down. So are you indirectly trying to say like hydrogen is much more efficient compared to EV? Uh, no, EV is currently much more efficient than hydrogen, mm -hmm. simply because the fuel cell is not very efficient. Yeah. I think in terms of like the market presence as well of like EVs, which are becoming so, so common now, when I look at hydrogen cars, I off, just off the top of my head, I can only think of maybe one, just like this car that Toyota does, mm. which is hydrogen powered. I think they're the only ones that are really investing into that technology, whereas everyone else is going down the EV path. So perhaps there isn't as much incentive from that sense as well to create hydrogen-friendly policy. But I guess in terms of policy making, also it's like a chicken and egg situation as well, right? Yeah. You as a government, do you build more facility? Or do you have more people actually have an EV car to facilitate the fact that you need infrastructure so yeah that's another thing that sometimes it bothers me how Malaysia is going to like tackle that how do you get around the issue of energy density then can you like interchange batteries is that something that would be possible with cars in the same way that you go to interchange the fuel in your tank with a petrol car could you do that with batteries in electric vehicles I think it's it's possible and I think Mitchell did indicate it just now as well I can see how it can significantly reduce the charging time. Because I can imagine like you go there, you park your car for one hour, you probably miss your meeting already <laughs> just because you need to charge your car, right? Yeah, oh, you also yeah. mentioned about how the hydrogen fuel cell could go into place with that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like now you're like on the racing track and when you go past, you just stop for a while for you to change your wheel, just like how they would change your battery. Oh, okay. So I think it's a good idea. You just stop and go if that would come to play. But I think the main point is like how we could get this to be widespread so that we could implement it on a large scale because no one's gonna buy the car if they do not have the facility to get a battery. But no one's gonna build like these stations if there's no demand for it. So there comes again the problem. Again, and then the next situation, right? So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's crazy. You know, you know what I would love? Looking at how Malaysia, how we like we have our own automotive manufacturers, right? I would love it if Proton and Purdue could almost position themselves as a regional pioneers almost of uh, EV car production in Southeast Asia or even just in Malaysia. You know, I wish like that's the little pipe dream of mine. Yeah, I mean, it would, it would definitely be nice. Though, yeah, yeah I mean, look, we have, we have plenty of smart people like yourself, Siva, like yourself, Minshuan, you know. <laughs> so, I don't know. I would, I would love it if that could happen. Yeah, I think it would be an interesting future. But again, chicken and egg situation. And also, like, if you're going to charge our vehicles, like going back to energy, it needs to be a clean energy because you want to look at the whole life cycle as well, right? You just don't want to be like introducing something, not thinking about what goes into that certain thing as well. So, yeah. Exactly. But in order to initiate a change, I think, you know, we have to shift the people's mindset. And I think that's where, like, youth advocacy comes into place, mm. as in spreading this awareness to assist the transition.
So like, guys, we really need to do something about climate change like that. I mean, it's very famous in, in the news and everything. Like, even the ikan sekar price also is going to increase like crazy. Already. So, yeah. We've been talking a lot about EVs, hydrogen cars, personal vehicles, public transport. But what do you guys think is the most rational of these options from, I guess, the socioeconomic perspective, environmental perspective, and also from just a personal perspective? In terms of EV, right? Although there might be a viable solution in the long term, but I would think that it's not the most viable option in terms of its scalability and affordability. So I would say there still needs to be a lot of emphasis to be placed on public transport in terms of its provision, the facilities that we have, as well as the quality. Yeah, I totally agree. Like the price of EVs and everything, super expensive. I myself can't buy EVs. The only thing that is possible for me is public transport. So I think public transport is the way to go because you are actually serving a lot of the people and you're not like capitalizing just the upper middle class for EVs, for example. Being a guy from Bawang, sometimes it's very hard to actually like have access to this public transport. So maybe like mobility as a service and if it can be made cheaper by maybe some sort of government policy and stuff like that, that could actually be very helpful. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm a massive proponent of public transport. I like in Malaysia, I don't, I actually don't have a license. I don't drive. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I mean, I actually use this as a bit. Is it is it because you feel the driving test or? (laughs) (laughs) No, I I actually say I'm a very good driver. I go go karting and all that. But you don't have a driving license. No, I don't intend to anytime soon. Actually, as well, because I don't see the need for it. Mm. Like when I was working in KL, I would always use the LRT into KLCC. To get to the LRT station, I would use the bus. So the bus, there's a bus stop right behind my house. I would take the bus over to Wang Samaju, then from there into KLCC, right? So for me, public transport is amazing. But also, I completely agree with what you said. If the commuter buses that bring people to these stations are electric or any other sort of more sustainable vehicles, then I think that would be a good solution as well. Mm-hmm. Because then you take care of this issue of, you know, creating a bigger catchment. Yeah. And then you bring people to public transport and then that creates the ease of use. I think out of all the bad things that the Slango government does, right, in terms of the environment perspective, you, you know the you know the news and everything, I don't have to say mm. it. The one thing they did best is like they introduced these free buses that you can actually take. That was a game changer in Rawang because like you can take a free bus and it leads you to the station, the KTM station, and it was amazing. So I think those types of things, it doesn't have to be mobility as a service, but those small uh, things like introducing a bus system that can actually like take you to places that are, that's actually very, very helpful. Do you think this is something that we could as young people, create pressure on policymakers and governments to, I guess, employ in greater quantities. Yeah, but for the youth, right, since we are the ones who are actually going to be stewards of our country and definitely the world as well, there is a significant amount of education that needs to come into place as well. People need to know about what's happening around them to actually create some form of change. I think there needs to be some form of change in terms of like education and how we can create a much more informed youth when it comes to climate change. Yeah, I think that would come down a lot too about raising awareness, about making people aware of like what they can do in their daily life to improve the current situation and what are the impacts of their everyday activities. Maybe we could introduce some sort of scheme to kind of educate people about carbon literacy. I think that would be a great ideal. Even for those who are not very interested in working in the environment sphere, but like it's something that could play a role no matter which sector you are in. And I guess, you know, when, when people actually get to know more as well, right, they can actually keep the government accountable. Like, for example, yeah. in recently COP26, they mentioned that they want to drop their carbon emissions like 40%. 
out of whatever that they emitted back in 2005. Mm. Basically, government states a target, but they did not state the details and everything. So maybe if, let's say, the youth are well-informed, they can actually keep them accountable, like, okay, what are you doing? But what is the platform towards, like, how the youth can actually communicate to government? What, what do you guys think about it? I feel like there's some sort of scheme so that they could be actively involved in climate mm. policy making. So maybe we'll require some sort of top-down approach. But another way we could look at it is perhaps through the educational institutions, like start incorporating some sort of like related syllabus into their education. For example, they might need to do a group project that's surrounding the theme of sustainability just to get the conversation started. And maybe from there, people could get inspirations on what could be used. Yeah, now that you mentioned it, I had like an interesting project that I used to do called uh, Project Leaflet where we take like one-sided newspaper and then make them into booklets. Because, you know, I, I studied in Malaysia, right? And then uh, most of the assignments and everything, uh, you have to print one-sided and the other side, you just leave it totally blank and give, give it to your teachers or lecturers to mark it up. But then once it's done, they just chuck it somewhere and usually it's not even recycled at all. So me and my friends, we created this project where we actually collect all this paper and we compile them. And then one side is all people have written down something or printed something on it, but the other side is totally blank. So you can actually make it as like rough paper or something like that. So those types of projects, even though it's simple, right? But at the end of the day, like people came and then they understand like, oh, we actually like wasting 50% of our paper. We could have done something about this. And through that, they, they were able to think about other stuff like, oh, there's an empty water bottle. What can we do with that? Or there's a tin cans everywhere. What can we do with that? Like all these things can actually like help in terms of like educating people as well. Yeah, I think having the practical, physical explanation of how these things work is so, so important to be able to communicate why we need to go down this path. You know, there are a lot of people who's I guess livelihoods depend on practices that are not so beneficial to climate change and the associated directives. So off the top of my head, like fishermen, you know, they need to have a certain amount of catch that they bring back. And that can lead to, you know, things like overfishing if there isn't strict regulation. So if there's a way to directly demonstrate to them that, you know, there are more sustainable ways to do this, and you can do that on the ground to communicate that to them, I think that's, you know, a very effective mm -hmm. educational method. Yeah, I mean, with climate change being such a broad issue, there's only really so much that we can cover. Today, I mean, we've looked at it from the perspective of transport, but transport is only a microcosm of a much wider discussion. But through this, I think we can all say we're in general agreement that from what we've covered today, a public transport in Malaysia is a viable way forward because it has a low personal cost, because it's accessible and because it's environmentally friendly. And I think as young people, especially being the group that climate change will affect the most, we can begin to encourage and realize more rational approaches like public transport. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please give us a follow on Instagram at Cambridge Coffee Tiam and stay tuned for more exciting discussions. See ya!